following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel. Welcome to Pilgrim's Progress. I'm Ray Greenley. I pastor the National Prayer Chapel in Woodbridge, Virginia. I've been trying to lay out for you in a very clear manner this week the faith that we receive from the scriptures. Second Peter, the first chapter, he says, to those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ 
have received a faith as precious as ours. We are to receive a faith as precious as that given to the apostles. But to do that, we're having to kick away the dirt and debris, the traditions, the rituals that have piled up on this scripture for 2,000 years. And I also just want to tell you, while I'm coming this week and laying out in a very clear and logical manner the depth of what Jesus did for us on the cross, my heart is broken at the point of weeping because of the condition of the American church. The American church is totally off track. It has become, it has become a habitation of darkness. And if there is not a very soon and mighty reformation in the American church, we will be swept away in judgment along with America. What we see happening in America today is a direct result of the compromised gospel that is being preached across our nation and on the airwaves. There is not a call to repentance and righteousness and holiness. There is not a rebuke for sin. There is not an understanding of what Jesus did for us at the cross, what his blood has done for us. Now listen as I read. Second Peter, the first chapter, beginning with verse 3. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. Now I'm going to be speaking today to you about what John Wesley referred to as a second work of grace. Now I know that in many circles this is scorned. But if you look at the passage that I just read to you, we participate in the divine nature by the divine promises of God, great and precious promises of Scripture. And by so doing, we escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. The promise of God is that not only can our sins be forgiven, not only can we be made righteous now, but we can also escape those things in our hearts 
that are caused by evil desires. In other words, we can be made new. Now he continues to describe this second work of grace. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness knowledge, and to knowledge self-control, and to self-control perseverance, and to perseverance godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But if anyone does not have them, he is nearsighted and blind, that is, is walking in darkness, and has forgotten that he has been cleansed from his past sins. Therefore, my brothers, be all the more eager to make your calling and election sure. It is not only to be cleansed from past sins, but to make our calling and election sure, we must be able to escape the evil desires that rise in our hearts. Those evil desires must be removed from us. He goes on, for if you do these things, you will never fail, and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, if we look at 1 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians, chapter 5, I'll begin with verse 19. Do not put out the Spirit's fire. Do not treat prophecies with contempt. Test everything. Hold on to the good. Avoid every kind of evil. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, may your whole spirit, soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. He will do it. It is not something that we do. It is a work of God through those very great and precious promises. But we must understand what this faith is all about. So now if we go to Second Thessalonians, verse 3, this is chapter 3, verse 3, but the Lord is faithful and he will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. 
we have confidence in the Lord that you are doing and will continue to do the things we command. May the Lord direct your hearts. May the Lord direct your hearts into God's love and Christ's perseverance or Christ's cheerful endurance as he works with you. Now, if we ask, what is the definition of sanctification? Paul, in writing to the Thessalonians, is saying, I want you to be entirely sanctified. Let's go to Webster's 1828 Dictionary. Also, Webster's 2001 Dictionary. The definition reads like this. The act of making holy. The act of consecration or setting apart for a sacred purpose. To make holy to purify from sin or evil. And Paul is saying, I want you to be entirely sanctified. That's what Jesus wants in your life. Now, I've been talking to you over these last several days in very strong theological terms. Some of you may have had a hard time following. I urge you, go back and listen again and listen again until these truths begin to sink into your heart. And again, I just confess to you I am at the point of just tears because of the condition of the American church. I'm just distraught over this. I can no longer just remain quiet about the desperate need for sanctification in the body of Christ. I'm tired of these sentimental, lying teachings that say grace covers our sin. Grace never covers sin in Scripture. Grace never covers sin in Scripture. So I've been going step by step and talking about these issues with you. I urge you again today... Listen carefully. I'm going to share again in part from a book by Dr. Malcolm Lavender called The Fallacy of the Sinning Christian, A Call to Reform. This is the desperate, desperate need of our age to be reformed and transformed into the likeness of Jesus and to utterly cast Calvin 
and Luther out of our minds. They accomplished something significant in their day, but they did not understand the gospel of Scripture. They taught heresy. They taught a lie. And their teachings will take you to hell if you follow them. And so I have noted this week that sozo, the word from which we get the word saved, means to be actually delivered from a problem. It could be a problem with health, or it could be a dangerous situation. It could be any number of things that threaten my life from which I need to be delivered, including sin. Scripture uses this word. The angel that came said Jesus would deliver us from sin. The angel did not say you will have to continue to live in your sin until you die. The gospel of Jesus Christ is good news. So in the context of my teaching, we have the problem of sin in mind. And I'm trying to show you in the scripture that the unlimited power and effectiveness of the blood of Jesus Christ is to sanctify us wholly and completely as Paul speaks about in 1 Thessalonians. The shed blood of Jesus Christ was to deliver all of mankind from the cataclysmic ruin of the fall. Now, am I overstating it? Was it cataclysmic? We have come to simply accept that we must die. But death was never to have a part of the human race. We were not created to die. We were created to live forever in the presence of our Father. But sin brought death Sin brings death today. So, there is a two-part process that needs to happen. First, we need to be made righteous. We've called that conversion. We've called that to be born again. We've called that to be crucified with Christ. And then secondly, to be sanctified wholly, completely. So redemption has a twofold or a double cure, if you please. Man is saved from sin, the sin of an action, after which he is made holy or cleansed from his life, from the inner man. So there is a twofold nature for the plan of salvation. 
So this twofold sin, when we are saved, our sins are removed. The word forgiven in the Greek literally means to be removed. So when we confess our sins, we come to Jesus Christ, we confess our sins. Those sins are forgiven, they are removed. We are made into a new creature. But the work has not been finished in us. All of you can testify with me, if you are a true Christian, that when you came to Jesus Christ, you were made into a new creature. But the old man, the sin nature, still rose up and often took you captive. Now, sin actually consists of what we do. Sin is an action. And that action needs to be forgiven. But it's also that wicked nature that we possess when we were born, and it needs to be cleansed. If you look at Psalm 51, you find there very clearly a twofold nature of sin. First, there are the sins, pardon me, there are the sins that David did with Bathsheba. And in verse 4, David confesses, against you I have sinned. David is behaviorally active. David sinned by taking Bathsheba, by causing Uriah the Hittite to be murdered. But then in verse 5, there is another kind of sin spoken of. He says, I was born in iniquity. In sin, my mother conceived me. Here David is not acting, he is being acted upon. He is the object of the action. He was born in iniquity. His mother conceived him in iniquity. So there are sins that we commit and they are dealt with through being forgiven or removed. The sin of this nature, the sin of iniquity that resides in every human heart, it is dealt with by cleansing. The sins that we do are viewed in Scripture as actions or manifestations of an inner heart condition. These are called the works of the flesh. Galatians five, nineteen through 21 They are called works of the flesh. The sin or this born in iniquity is viewed in Scripture as a bent disposition or inclination or propensity or tendency. 
this sin nature remains in the believer until it is purged or cleansed by the baptismal power of the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, were the disciples saved before Pentecost? It is overwhelmingly evident in the scriptures that they were saved before they went to Pentecost. I want to cite just a few scriptural evidences that indicate that they were saved and that they had a very close and personal relationship with Jesus, that his approval was upon them. So in Luke the 10th chapter, verse 20, we find that their names were written in heaven. In John, the 17th chapter, verse 12, we're told that they were not lost. In other words, they were saved. In John seventeen fourteen, they were not of the world. In Luke 9, 1, they were commissioned to cast out demons and to heal the sick. In Matthew twenty-eight nineteen, they were commissioned to preach the gospel to the world. In Acts 1, 4, they were commanded by the Savior himself to wait for the baptism of the Holy Spirit before attempting to carry out the Great Commission. In John 7... 37 through 39 and in John 14 verses 15 through 17 we learn that the Holy Spirit in his baptismal fullness is only for the believers for the saved and not for the world not one of the above things that I've shared can be said of one who is not saved the disciples were saved before Pentecost. Now it's very clear that the carnal nature remains in the believer. But for how long? And what removes it? Well, the general opinion of the Christian world today is stated by a a Baptist theologian, Dr. A. H. Strong. Let me read to you what he wrote. Although in regeneration the governing disposition of the soul is made holy, there still remains tendencies to evil which are unsubdued. Now it's significant to note that the believer has everything in kind in initial salvation that he ever has. Sanctification, then, does not give one a new religion. It rather perfects what was begun in initial salvation. Now, please understand what I'm trying to say to you. We have so cheapened the gospel. We have so cheapened the blood of Jesus Christ that we have lost out on much of what he has for us. And I tell you honestly... I want all that Jesus Christ has for me. I don't want to lose anything that Jesus would want to give me 
that I could be successful in this journey on this earth, being made ready to spend eternity with Jesus. I don't want to miss heaven. So, let me summarize. In initial salvation, sins are removed or forgiven. But, we sometimes refer to that as sanctification. So, we often in the Christian church will refer to sanctification as the beginning work of being born again. And then many Christians will refer to sanctification as the work of a lifetime. The Scripture does not teach that theology of sanctification. That is an expression of the modern church. And the modern church wants to say then that all you will lose if you do not complete the work of sanctification are a few rewards that you would receive in heaven. In other words, the further you go on the road to sanctification, the better the rewards you receive in heaven. This is simply garbage. It is not biblical. It is not taught in Scripture. In, in true sanctification, the carnal nature, the tendency to sin, is completely cleansed from our heart. Does that mean I can't be tempted? No, I can always be tempted. Can I always sin? Yes, I can always choose to sin. But the sin is coming from outside temptations and not from inside inclinations. In initial salvation, one is initially sanctified. In other words, that person no longer will walk in any known sin. They will walk clean before God. But they still have the carnal nature. But in the second work of sanctification, the believer is totally, wholly sanctified. In the initial work of salvation, the governing disposition is made holy. In sanctification, all unsubdued tendencies are purged, and one is made holy on the inner place of the man's heart. In the initial salvation, one is given the love of God. In the second work, one is made perfect in love. Now, the fact that the carnal nature remains in believers is evident as one observes the behavior of the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2. These Christians are referred to by the Apostle Paul as having been sanctified in Christ Jesus. Now, this is sanctification as a fact, initial conversion. The, re- the forgiveness and removal of sin. But the unsubdued tendencies still remain in some of them, and it's very evident, for in 1 Corinthians 3, verses 1 and 3, we read, And I, brethren, could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal, even as unto babes in Christ. 
I have fed you with milk and not with meat, for heretofore you were not able to bear it, neither yet now are you able. In other words, Paul is saying, look, you're not able to hear about this second work of grace because you're not grown up enough to understand what I'm talking about. And this is my great fear that some of you who are listening are just angrily disagreeing because you're not mature enough in Christ. You've not walked deeply enough into Christ to leave that carnal nature. For ye are yet carnal, for whereas there is among you envying and strife and divisions, are you not carnal and walk as men? I experienced this last night at the National Prayer Chapel. And it's with sadness that I report to you that in the meeting, one person made a very bold statement that was clearly wrong, but the statement was made with arrogance, with hardness of heart, with defensiveness, and someone else spoke up and said, look, if that's how you feel, why don't you just leave? You think things got a little tense? And I intervened and said, no, separation is not the answer to conflict. Well, why was there conflict? Because we're dealing with people who have come to Christ, who have had their sins forgiven, but still babes in Christ. In other words, the carnal nature has not yet been subdued in them. I'm not even sure that they would not argue about that with me. But the evidence is the hostility, the defensiveness, the anger. And I see this Anywhere I go in the church, I I see it in the nasty emails that I get from some of you who are angry about what I'm saying. And one of the reasons I'm shy at this point to open the phone lines to talk about these issues is because some of you are very angry and very defensive about what I'm saying, and I'm not going to argue with you. I'm going to simply share with you what the Lord has shown me and what he has done in me. And I want to maintain the peace of Christ. It's hard to maintain the peace of Christ when you yet have a carnal nature. And there rises up in your heart an angry, bitter defensiveness. And that's what was happening in the Corinthian church. They were converted. They were saved. But they were still being plagued and walking into sin because of the carnal nature that had not yet been cleansed from their hearts. I've been a part of the church for, as a pastor now for more than 40 years about 45 years. As a child, I was a part of church. 
and I have seen such bitter fighting in the church. I have witnessed ungodly scenes time after time after time. Why? Because of babes in the church, because of the immature Christian who has not yet received the second work of grace. So these believers in the Corinthian church were brethren. They were Christians. They were born again. And they were babes in Christ. But even though they were saved, the old unsubdued tendencies still remained in their hearts. Thus there were manifestations of carnality among them, envy, strife, and divisions. It is tragic that the denial of the effectiveness and the power of the blood of Jesus Christ to cleanse believers from the carnal nature has rendered God's church ineffective for hundreds of years. And today the church is basically, totally shut down in America. And you say, oh, wait a minute, Pastor. We have mega churches. People are joining the church in hordes. Everybody loves the church. Yes, because the church is filled with largely unconverted men and women, men and women who have never been born again, who still walk in sin. The sign of an unconverted person is one who still walks in known sin and rebellion against God. Oh, they're spray-painted on the outside with Jesus. They have the rituals of the church down, but they still walk in their rebellion. They have not experienced that initial work of grace, of having sin removed from their hearts, being forgiven, and then others in the church who have who have truly been converted have never gone forward and finished the work of grace in their hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit, by the baptism. In, instead, they'll say, oh, I received the Holy Spirit in his fullness when I was baptized. No, you didn't. The Holy Spirit began to work on your life before you even turned to Jesus. He was wooing you. He was calling after you. He was coming after you. And he brought you finally to that place where you would surrender your heart to Jesus. And yes, at that point, you were baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That is for initial salvation, for the forgiveness of sins, and for the strength and the courage to walk now day by day without sin. But you still have the tendency to sin in your heart. You still have the old carnal nature in you because you have never received the second work of grace. You've never had that purged from your heart. Can you be saved without having that carnal nature purged from your heart? John Wesley said, absolutely, you can be. He said, there is a high road and a low road. The low road for John Wesley was a person who received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, who confessed his sins, and who by the power of the blood of Jesus was washed and made clean and no longer walks in any known sin. That's the low road. 
the high road for John Wesley, on the other hand, that he said you must constantly call people to or there will be no work of grace in the church. It will not prosper. The second work of grace, John Wesley says, we must plead with people to go all the way with Jesus. And even have that old nature removed, purged, cleansed. Now the Holy Spirit cleanses the believer from all carnality. But, of course, large sections, the majority of Christendom today denies that there is a second work of grace or that there's any provision for the removal of the carnal nature of this life. Muller, in the Dictionary of Latin and Greek Theological Terms, says, the Protestant, Orthodox, Lutheran, and Reformed are unanimous in their teaching that perfect or total sanctification does not occur in this life. John Calvin said, (coughs) pardon me, in the Institutes, holiness of life, real holiness, as it is called, is inseparable from the free imputation of righteousness. So Calvin affirms holiness as imputed, but he denies that we can be without spot and blemish now. It should be noted that for Calvin, holiness consists of imputed righteousness. That is the teaching of the Reformed Church. The believer is accounted as holy or righteous while being in fact still in sin. Again, Calvin says, the goal to which all the pious ought to aspire is to appear in the presence of God without spot and blemish, but of course, of the present life, it is at best nothing more than progress. We shall never reach the goal until we have laid aside the body of sin, being completely united to the Lord. Nowhere in the scriptures is this taught. Now, please, let me just make a side reference. Most of us believe what we believe based on our experience. When we come to Jesus, our experience is not a true indicator of what is true or what is false. If you're going to say, I've tried as hard as I can, and I cannot leave my sin, and God is going to simply have to accept me the way I am, you are basing your reality on your experience and not on the blessed power and effectiveness of the blood of Jesus Christ. All that you have is a gift from Jesus. Righteousness, true, experienced righteousness, is a gift from Jesus. It's not something you worked up. It's not by the law. It is something that is given to you. By faith, my sin is forgiven. By faith, my sin is removed from my life. By faith, I live without sin day by day 
By faith, the second work of grace is accomplished in my life, and I am made holy. By faith, in the precious blood of Jesus Christ, through these great and precious promises spoken of in Second Peter, I participate in the divine nature. Now, please understand me. Nothing of what I am telling you today is based on the experience of man. It is based on the word of Scripture. Now that raises a question. What is the basis of authority in your life? What is the basis for truth and reality in your life? I, and I pray you, have made the decision that truth is Jesus Christ. That my truth, based on my experience, is a lie. So Jesus Christ is my authority. He is the way, he is the truth, and he is the life. I am not the way, I am not the truth, and I am not the life. Jesus is. So you cannot judge what I'm saying based on your experience. Any more than a drug addict can say, I can never leave my cocaine. I can never leave my heroin. Or the fornicator can say, I can never leave my sexual addiction. Or I can never leave my pornography. Or I can never leave my cigarettes and my drinking. Of course you can't in your experience if you are the truth, if you are the way, if you are the life. You cannot leave these things. They have you bound. If you say, Pastor, I cannot leave my sin, that is based on your life being the truth. I'm saying to you today, please understand, you are not the truth. Your experience is never the judge of what is true or what is false. The judgment of whether you are true or false is always the word of Scripture. It is Jesus. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And you must take these promises from Scripture and you must pray through until there is no question about where you stand. You must pray through. Then, your experience is not going to be your truth. The scriptures are going to be your truth. Now I go further. The Westminster Confession, a document of lies, says sanctification is throughout the whole man, yet imperfect in this life. What is he basing that on in the Westminster Confession? On the experience of men and women who have not gone to the depth with Jesus Christ. 
there is another man by the name of Drake, Finnis J. Drake, in Drake's Anointed Reference Bible. He even denies that man has a carnal nature. People say utterly foolish things. To assume the orthodox position of the modern church on sanctification is to deny the power and the effectiveness of the blood of Jesus Christ. And that's why I called it earlier last week the surprising Antichrist. Remember that First Thessalonians 5.23 passage I shared? And the God of peace himself, may he sanctify you wholly. Or Hebrews 10.29, he was sanctified. This means that he was sanctified, a completed action, past tense, acted upon by another. He was sanctified by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. So, the scriptures will settle it that we are sanctified in this life, past tense. And then secondly, that we are sanctified wholly. Moreover, the word to sanctify, hagios, hagiazo, does not occur in the Greek New Testament in any passage in the future tense. It is always present. So, the general plan of salvation, there is no sanctifying experience on the other side of the grave. Sanctification is therefore present. It is now or it is never it's also confirmed by Hebrews 9.28 that shows that when Christ comes the second time, he will not deal with the sin question in any redemptive sense, but apart from sin unto salvation. And I want to quickly look that up for you. Hebrews, the ninth chapter. Let me read it for you. <clears throat> Verse 28. Well, let's go back earlier. Let's go to verse 26. Then Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world, but now he has appeared once and for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as man is destined to die once and after that to face the judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people. And literally in the Greek, it is to lift up off of. If I have a glass of water on my desk and I lift it up, that glass of water no longer sits on the desk. I have lifted it up. I've lifted it off. He's saying Christ was sanctified to lift the sin up off of you. And he will appear a second time not to bear sin, and literally in the Greek it is to separate from sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. In other words, when Christ comes a second time, when we die, 
There is no making holy. There is no sanctification. There is no entrance into the kingdom of God if we have not already had our sins taken away from us. This is Hebrews, again, the ninth chapter, and I urge you to read carefully these verses 26 through 28. Now, we're out of time for today. We're going to come back tomorrow, and we're going to talk more about this. I thank you for being patient with me as I try to lay out logically these very basic truths of the gospel of Jesus. They may be new to you. Go back to the scriptures and read carefully what I've done. Listen to this broadcast a second or third time. Now, we're coming to the end of the month, and I need your help to cover the cost of radio for this month. We're $650 short of being able to cover the cost of radio for this month. You can write to me at the National Prayer Chapel, Post Office Box 2346, Woodbridge, Virginia, 22195. You can also go to our webpage, nationalprayerchapel.com. You've been listening to Pilgrim's Progress with Pastor Ray Greenley. God bless you today. I'm praying for you. I'm lifting you up before the Lord and asking that he will enlighten your heart and your mind and he will completely sanctify you, deliver you from sin, make you righteous, and then accomplish that second work of grace in your heart. I love you, my brother, my sister. I'll talk to you soon. Present you blameless before the presence of His glory.